It was the very first day of my law school education at uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I walked into my very first class as a law student with about, oh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about 90 or so, that's the, the recollection that I have, about 90 or so, very nervous first-year law students. There was kind of an eager anticipation in the class as we're sitting around with this big group of people we didn't know and expecting what this class and this whole law school experience would be like. And it was the class constitutional law. We were going to be learning about the United States Constitution. The professor walks in and comes to the front of the class, and I think he said just a couple of preliminaries just very quickly, and then he said something like, we're going to get right into it. We're going to get right into our, our lesson here. And he began looking down at his list of attendees in the class, and he said, Mr. Magnuson, is there a Mr. Magnuson here? And it was one of those moments in life that you say, really, Lord? Me? There's like 90 other people in the class. The, the, the guinea pig at the first day of the class has to be me. And so, uh, you know, I kind of raised my hand. Yeah, right here. And the professor said, he said, Mr. Magnuson, I'm going to ask you uh, one of the most important questions. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but he built it up like this big question that I'm going to ask you of constitutional law. And he said, Mr. Magnuson, did you eat breakfast this morning? And everyone kind of laughs, right, like nervously, what's going on here? Well, I had not, in fact, eaten breakfast that morning, so I said, I, 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 honestly, no, I had not. And so he began to explain to the class how breakfast was a very important thing, and there were some good aspects of eating breakfast in the morning. And he said, so, Mr. Magnuson, the question I want to ask you is if Congress wanted to pass a law ordering that everyone in America ate breakfast every morning, could they do that? And if you've ever seen a deer that is stuck in the headlights of an onrushing car, you'll have an idea of what my face looked like then. Um, see, because I knew the answer was no, right? I mean, we all know. Everyone would have said, well, no, of course they can't do that. So, I, you know, you take the first step, well, no. And you know what the next question is going to be. Okay, well, Mr. Magnuson, Why? And then I'm really stuck, right? And I, I stammered out some answer about, well, I think we have the right to decide whether we can eat breakfast or not. And then he took that as a teaching opportunity to start asking other people and getting feedback until we got to the right answer, which is, well, of course, you're all constitutional law experts. You know the answer to this question. Congress only has the certain delegation of authority that the Constitution gives it, and it doesn't cover whether an individual person eats breakfast in the morning. Congress doesn't have the power to make that law. That was the right answer. I didn't embarrass myself, I think, too badly in hindsight, but I'll tell you, it's one of those things that is just like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, law school education, professors love tormenting students with these kind of questions. And for the next three years, it seemed like we were all waiting in anticipation. Um, I really didn't do my reading as much as I can, but if I get asked a question about this case, what am I going to say? And you're just, it's like this torment the, the whole time preparing you probably for getting grilled by judges at some point later in your career. Well, why do I start there when I was under interrogation? I was under examination because this morning we're going to look at Jesus putting his students, his class, under examination. 
This examination has been coming. We have been building up to this moment, as I said last week, for the last eight chapters of the book of Mark. The whole book of Mark, the whole gospel, is ascending to this peak. It is the peak of the entire book, and it's basically halfway, square in the middle of the book of Mark. And now, from here, everything from the gospel of Mark will flow from here. It rises to this mountain peak, and then it descends from this mountain peak, gathering momentum to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension back into heaven. This is the pinnacle. This is the center of the entire book. And for the last nearly two and a half years, by the way, we're about two and a half years into Jesus' ministry with his disciples by this point. He has spent not only two, about two and a half years with them, the last several months when he travels outside of Galilee, Remember, we've seen him travel outside of Galilee. We've seen him go up into Tyre and Sidon. We've seen him go over to Bethsaida. We've seen him all over, not just his home area of Capernaum and Nazareth. He has been teaching his disciples over and over and over again. And, and if you will, it's almost like a midterm examination. Jesus is going to sit him down and he's going to test him. What have you learned? Will you look with me in Mark chapter 8? Look with me at verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Hmm, where is Caesarea Philippi? You remember last week we were in Bethsaida. And the best guess is that this town was on the Jordan River, close to the Jordan River, just north of the Sea of Galilee. If you followed the Jordan River about another, I, I heard, see, saw it estimated about 25 miles north you would be in ancient Caesarea Philippi. This was a really significant town. It was kind of a capital city for the man called Philip the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great. And his Herod the Great's kingdom was broken out into four different um, uh, areas. Philip the Tetrarch ruled this particular area. It was a really significant city. And Jesus was in the villages or the towns. It's Think of like the suburbs, if you will, of Caesarea Philippi. Just the area of Caesarea Philippi north of um, north of the Sea of Galilee. And notice what is, by the way, he asked his disciples, as they're going, as they're on this journey, as they are in this region, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? Here's the first quiz question, the first midterm. What's the word on the street? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias or Elijah. And others, one of the prophets, and he saith unto him, them, but whom say ye that I am? Here's the clincher question. This is the midterm examination. He says, who do you say that I am? The simple point that I want to make to you today, friends, is that this is the most important question that you will ever answer in your entire life. I want to today have us come into this question like we are under a midterm examination, a far more important and a far more pressing and I hope a far more sobering question than Mr. Magnuson, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? I can assure you it is. Because I want to say to you today, friends, if this Bible is true, if this Bible is true, and I only say that because there may be one or two people or more here today or within the sound of my voice, you're not sure about that. You're not sure if you can trust the authority and the validity of the Bible. But I say to you today, 
I say it by way of warning and by way of sobriety. If this Bible is true, if this book is true and it is authoritative and it is inspired, your eternal destiny will be determined by what your answer to that question is. Whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell will come down to the answer to this question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you, not the crowd, not mom and dad, not the pastor, not the people sitting in the pews around you, who do you say that I am? What would our answer to that question be this morning if Jesus of Nazareth were standing here in the front and he were looking at you and saying, friend, who do you say that I am? The title of the message this morning is just simply, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And there may be a couple people here today who you say, I'm not sure about that. I, I have to be honest with you, Pastor. I am not sure about who Jesus of Nazareth really was. There may be some of you who say, I already know the answer to that question. I could tell you exactly who I believe Jesus is. And that's great. But I want to encourage you today to come into it not with the view of someone who's been a Christian for a really long time and knows all the answers to the questions. I want you to come in today like you're hearing this for the first time and you're being asked to searchingly examine your own heart. Who do I really believe? Who am I convinced that Jesus of Nazareth really is? I want to break our message today and this question, this searching question that Jesus asks into three parts. First, we're going to talk about the man, the identification of this man. Who is this? Secondly, we're going to talk about the mission the mission that he is going to describe for himself in verse 31. And then we're going to talk thirdly about the meaning, the meaning of all of this, the meaning of this question as it relates to our own life. That's how we'll break up our topic here this morning. And may God give us the wisdom and the insight to know how we would answer that question for ourselves. Let's start, first of all, by talking about the man, the man Jesus of Nazareth. Notice what he says by way of inquiry of his disciples in verse 27. By the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? What is, as I said, the word on the street concerning me? Now notice what his disciples say. They say, they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elias. As I said, Elijah is really the idea of that, of that, of that word and others, one of the prophets. Now, I want you to notice something immediately about all of these answers that they give. All of them are compliments. None of them are insults. Do you remember what the Pharisees said about Jesus? If you would have asked the Pharisees, who, do, who is Jesus, what would they have said? Deceiver. The agent of Beelzebub, the devil. Do you remember when we were looking at that and they, they were saying of Jesus, you cast out demons by the prince of the demons. You're, you're yourself an agent of the devil. The Pharisees would have insulted him. But none of these were insults. That is to say, Jesus' reputation among the religious elites was very different than his reputation among the common people. The common people knew 
that he wasn't from the devil. The common people knew. They saw him. They had seen his miracles. They had heard him speak. They said, no one speaks like this guy does. They knew that he had a positive influence. They knew that he was from a positive source. But what was it? Well, let's just look at these very briefly. The first one, he's John the Baptist. Now, stop there for just a minute. Why on earth would someone say he's John the Baptist? John the Baptist and Jesus, as we know, if we are students of our Bible, were actually cousins. They actually were from a similar family line. And we know that they ministered even at the same time in history. How could someone say two different people are the same people? Well, does anyone remember at any point in our study of the Gospel of Mark, someone who was a little confused about that same thing himself? Herod. Herod Antipas was confused about this. Do you remember the story? John the Baptist. How did John the Baptist get killed? Because he dared to say to Herod Antipas, it's not lawful for you, it's not right for you to marry your brother's wife. That's exactly what happened. Herod Antipas had seen his brother's wife and he had said, you know, I'd like her. And he managed to steal her away from his brother and become his wife. Not only that, she was related to him. They were actually within the lines of what we would call consanguinity. They couldn't lawfully be married. They were family members. And so here, John says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, this incestuous, adulterous marital relationship. And Herod Antipas ultimately listens to his wife, Herodias, and is brought into a trap where now he is forced in, in, in fear of being embarrassed by his, by his surroundings and by his other political leaders, he is forced to kill John the Baptist. Well, we learned earlier in the book of Mark that when Herod heard all these miracles that, John, or that Jesus had been doing, do you know what his guilty conscience told him? It's John the Baptist. He's raised from the dead. That was a guilty conscience speaking. Well, I suspect that the disciples had heard of this, obviously, and they had said, well, there's one theory going around that you're John the Baptist. You're, you've been raised from the dead. So they passed that along to Jesus. Now, what about Elijah? What does this mean? They said, there are other people on the street that think you're Elijah. Where would that have come from? Well, do you remember the Old Testament prophet Elijah, one of the two great prophetic figures at the heart of the book of, at the very end of the book of 1 Kings and into the book of 2 Kings, these two great prophetic figures, Elijah and Elisha. And you remember it's told in, in scripture that Elijah didn't die. Elijah received on a chariot of fire a transport straight up into heaven. And so there was an idea, a Jewish idea, that Elijah would one day return. In fact, there actually was prophecy on this. This was not simply baseless speculation. Listen to Malachi verse 4, chapter 4, the very last book of our Old Testament and the very last two verses in which the Old Testament ends. He, God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Hmm. What's the great and dreadful day of the Lord? It's the day of God's judgment. It's the day when God asserts his sovereign authority over all mankind. That day is still coming, and it will be a great and dreadful day when God exercises his sovereign judgment over all mankind. 
So you see here, the Israelites say, well, before that great day of the Lord, Elijah is going to come. And so some of the people see Jesus as saying, well, you're the one who's coming ahead of the great day of the Lord. That's a compliment. You're coming as Elijah. Elijah, it's said of him here that he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Friends, who was this prophetic person? Who was this Elijah who would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Do you know? It's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. Jesus said, actually, Elijah has already come, and they did to him whatever they desired. John the Baptist was this figure prophesied in, in Malachi chapter 4. Not Jesus, but the people on the street look and they say, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah. Or notice then what they say, uh, verse 28, and others, one of the prophets. What does that mean? He's, he's a messenger from God. He's a spokesperson for God. He teaches and he does miracles like one of these Old Testament messengers that we read about. Again, all of these things are compliments. And the simple point I want to make today is that if you were to go to the people on the street, even here in Minneapolis, the, the majority of what you'd hear about Jesus of Nazareth would be compliments. Who was he? Well, he's a, he was a great teacher. He, he was, we're even willing to admit that he was sent from God. In fact, how many times have we been out on a Wednesday evening right outside of our church on these streets, and if you've ever struck up a conversation with one of our Somali friends, do you know what they would hasten to say to you? Oh, that Jesus. No, we believe in Jesus too. He was a, he was a great prophet. He was a really good guy. He's just not the prophet. That's Muhammad. If you were to talk to a, a, a Mormon, Someone who, uh, a Mormon who believes that Joseph Smith is the prophet of God who has sent to take his people, if you will, beyond the work of Jesus. They would assure you, oh no, we're just alike. We look at Jesus in exactly the same ways. We believe the same things. No. You will hear compliments about who Jesus is. He's from God, or he's a prophet in line that keeps on going. Other prophets have come. Muhammad, the prophet. Joseph Smith, the prophet. Whoever it is. But, but it's just compliments. And that's why Jesus is going to now bring it to them. And he's going to say, but whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, thou art the Christ. Now, what does this mean? Peter, you can almost see him puffing his chest out and standing up proud and saying, Jesus, you are the Christ. Now, we don't, we don't really know, do we, what that word really means? We talked about it just a little bit last week. We should. We are Christians. We are Christians. So we better know what that word Christ means. The, mean, the, the meaning of it in the Greek literally just means anointed. It means someone who has been anointed by God. And this word is absolutely a critical one in the perspective of our Old Testament. Now, I'm sorry to bore you with technical details, but this one is important. What language was the New Testament written in? It was written in Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. What was the Old Testament written in? 
Hebrew. So you had to translate the Old Testament into Greek to be in the modern speaking language. Now, one of the key pictures in the Old Testament of someone who was anointed was someone called the Messiah. You've heard that word before, the Messiah. It's from the Hebrew word Mesheach, Mesheach. And this word Mesheach literally had the idea of being anointed. And when that word from the Old Testament, Mesheach, the anointed one, was translated into the Greek, it got Christos, Christ. In other words, the Old Testament Messiah and the New Testament Christ, they're the same person. The anointed one of God. Now, it is true, there are some, many usages in the Old Testament of that Hebrew word Mesheach, Messiah, anointed, that don't point forward to Jesus. You remember Saul? David said, I will not lift up mine hand against God's anointed, Mesheach. I'm not going to do that. He wasn't referring to the Messiah that was coming. But there was prophesied in the Old Testament this very specific reference to an anointed one coming. Not an anointed one, but the anointed one who would be coming and who would be the great savior and deliverer of the Jewish people. The one who would be bringing about the consummation of history and bringing a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And these Jews of Jesus' day, they were devoutly hoping, they were devoutly searching for that Mesheach, that anointed, that Christ. And now Peter stands up and says, Jesus, you're the Mesheach. You're the anointed. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You see, you get this very clear. Jesus, Peter is not saying, Jesus, you are anointed of God. Other people would have believed that too when they said, you're one of the prophets. You're anointed like the Old Testament prophets were. No, he's saying you're the anointed. It would be like at your work, you may have a manager over you. You have a boss. And that manager has another senior manager over him or her, and that's a boss. And that person reports up to a vice president and then to a senior vice president, and those are bosses. But then there's the CEO, and he or she is the boss. The boss. And here Peter is saying, Jesus, you're, you're the boss. You're the anointed. You're the Christ. Now, what would this have meant? What would this have meant to the Jewish people? Well, we have a clue actually from Matthew 22. And maybe if you're someone who likes writing little margin notes in your Bible or just in your notebook, you'll take a look at this on, on your own. Because in Matthew 22 and verse 41, the Pharisees are gathered together and Jesus asks them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Same thing. What do you think of the Messiah? What do you think about this anointed one that's coming? And he says, whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. The Pharisees of that day, the Jews of that day, believed that the Messiah, the anointed one, would come as the son of David. Who was David? David was the greatest king of Israel. That is to say, the one who was coming was going to be a king. 
And he was going to be their political ruler. He was going to, if you'll pardon me, make Israel great again. Again, I apologize. He, that's what he was going to do. That was his goal. And they were looking for it. Why? Because they were under the thumb of the Romans. They hated being subjects of Rome. They hated being ruled over by non-Jews, by Gentiles. They were looking forward to the day. Who's going to be the one to throw off the Roman rule and, and bring all these prophecies from the Old Testament about how Israel will reign again. It will be the greatest nation on earth. All the people will come and bow down. They said, yes, we want that day. Give us the son of David. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, the idea here, another messianic prophecy, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And all of Israel was saying, Yes, give us a footstool. Give us victory over our enemies with this son of David. And now Peter says, Stands up before Jesus and says, you're the Christ, you're the anointed, you're the Messiah, you're the son of David, you are the one who is going to bring all of history in all, to its final culmination, and we are going to triumph. Now notice how Jesus responds. In Matthew 16, you could write again, jot a little cross-reference, you can see the praise that Jesus gives to Peter for this response. He doesn't give him any of the credit, he says, Flesh and blood isn't the one who revealed this to you. It wasn't human reasoning. It wasn't someone whispering in your ear that you got this answer. It was my Father in heaven that showed you that. But notice here in Mark 8 what Jesus responds. Look at verse 30. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody that I'm the anointed one. Now stop for a minute and scratch your heads and think... Uh, think curiously about this. Why on earth would Jesus have said, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah? I thought we would want everyone to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Friends, do you know you don't want a PR agent for you who doesn't know the whole story? It's a really bad idea to send someone out to tell everyone about you if they don't know the full story about you, if they only know half of it. What would Peter have said at, the, at, at this point in the story, if Jesus had said, yeah, go tell everyone now that I'm the Christ, the Messiah. Can you imagine Peter going out? The son of David is here. He's our king. He's going to bring about the great deliverance of the nation of Israel. The Romans are going down. No, Peter had a lot more learning to do. He wasn't ready to go tell everyone what he knew about the Messiah. And will you notice something with me? We see it very, next in verse 31. Let's move not from the man, but now to the mission. Notice what Jesus says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Son of Man was another Old Testament prophecy. You can read it in, 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 in the book of Daniel chapter 9 about the Son of Man and who he was prophesied to be. Here Jesus is again applying this Old Testament prophecy to himself. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, this is a strange plot twist. 
the one who had prophesied to be the son of David, the great king of Israel. Jesus says, and just so you know, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be rejected by whom? By the elders. Those were the most important lay people in the land rich and important rulers in the Sanhedrin, the governing council of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious elite of the day, they're going to reject me. Now, you need to understand what that means. The word there that's used for rejected, if we were in our terms, it would be like you going into a, into a gas station and handing someone a $100 bill. And what does someone at the gas station do when you hand them a $100 bill? They take it and they put it up to the light. They look at it like that. They investigate it. They have some other techniques for determining whether it's legit. That's the idea. It is to investigate something and then to reject it like it's a counterfeit. You see that? Here, Jesus is saying, the most important religious and cultural and social elite in my day are going to hold me up to the light. They're going to investigate me, and they're going to say, you're not it. You're a counterfeit, and they're going to put them aside. And then they're going to kill him. Wow. Now, what I want to point out here, when Jesus is testifying to this, will you notice me with me here in verse 31? He began to teach them that the Son of Man, and what's the next word that he uses? That the Son of Man must suffer. Not that he just simply will. He must Suffer. You say, why does the Son of Man has to, why must he suffer? Well, we might stop for a minute and say, well, is he saying that he's going to get overpowered by the devil? The devil is just too strong for him. He's, he's got these great political and spiritual forces against him, and he must do it. He's going to be overpowered. Of course not. Why did he say he must? Well, if we just keep on going, I think we'll understand. Look at verse 32. And he spake that saying openly, that is plainly and clearly. He kept on saying it over and over again. He was telling them without any confusion, without any mystery, this is what's going to happen. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Now the idea of took him here is to take him aside. Can't you just see this? Jesus is teaching them. And Peter goes over and he grabs him and he says, no, Jesus, hold on, come on, come on. We, got, we have a conference here. He pulls him to one side, and what does he do? He begins to rebuke him. Do you know the same word is used in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is rebuking devils to come out of people? It's like Peter's looking at him and saying, no, Jesus, that's not going to be it. That's not going to happen. That, there's no way that's going to happen. Verse 33, but when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Same word. Peter rebuked him. He rebuked Peter. And look what he said. He wanted to make sure all the disciples heard. That's why he turned and looked on all of them. And then he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Wow. Peter had just been the one to stand up and say, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the one who God has revealed to me. You're the Christ. And now Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You say, what's going on here? Do you remember when we looked at the gospel of Mark here about the temptation of Jesus by the devil? Do you remember what the devil said to try to distract Jesus, to detour him from his earthly mission? Do you know what he said? I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. 
I will get all of these kingdoms lined up in your control if you do what? If you bow down and worship me. Do you know what he was saying to Jesus? Satan was saying at that point, Jesus, you don't need to have the cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. You don't need to have difficulty. You can have all the kingdoms. You just need to worship me. What was he saying? Take a shortcut. There's a shortcut that'll get you the kingdom, and it doesn't involve suffering, so take it. And now Jesus is hearing the same thing from Peter. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to be killed. You're not going to die. You're not going to be rejected by the chief priests. We'll see to that. We'll protect you. We're not going to let this happen to you. And Jesus looks around and says, Satan, that's Satan speaking. Satan is the one who's trying to throw another stumbling block in front of me, another offense, this one not from my mortal enemy, Satan, but from one of my friends. Can I just pause for just a moment, friends? We, as friends, being very well-meaning, can be the instruments of Satan toward someone else. Beware of that. Why did Peter say to Jesus, Jesus, don't do it, don't go to the cross, don't suffer, I'm not going to let you do that, because he hated him? He did it out of love. That was his friend. That was his Lord. That was his teacher. And out of love for him, he said, Jesus, you don't have to go through that. No, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the king. That's not going to be it for you. And in his well-meaning love, he was putting a big stumbling block, a big offense in front of Jesus. And Jesus saw it. And he said, Satan, that's you talking. Get behind me. I have a mission. Now, what was the mission that Jesus had? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Because Satan was going to overpower him? No, Satan didn't want him to go to the cross. To get to the cross, Jesus had to go over Satan, if you will. Why did he have to? And friends, this is the heart of what we believe as Christians. This is at the very heart of what we cling to. He had to because he had to do it in your place. Why did he have to suffer? Because by the result of my sin, I deserve to suffer judgment at the hands of a righteous God. Why did he have to die? Because in my sin, I deserve to die and be accursed forever from him. Why did he have to be rejected by men, by the religious elite of the day? Because I, in my sin, in my rebellion, I deserve Rejection, not just from man, but from God. You see, friends, if Peter would have known his Old Testament, he would have known that the anointed one needed to suffer. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, and again, you can just write this in the margin of your Bible, Daniel 9 and verse 26, listen to this testimony of Jesus, this prophecy He's, the scripture says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. What word he, in the Hebrew do you think was word used there? Mesheach, the anointed one. The Messiah will be cut off. But listen to this. But not for himself. Why was the Messiah, why was the anointed one slain, rejected, suffered, killed? It wasn't for himself. It was for you. Because our Bible says in Isaiah 53, another passage, it 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, his stripes from a, a whip, are we healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on who? The anointed one. He has laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all. Friend, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did he have to be killed and rejected? Why did he have to rise the third day from the dead? Because he had to do it for you. And he had to do it for me. What held Peter back from seeing the great truth that Jesus was trying to teach him? Notice what Jesus says. Get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. That word savorest, we don't use that word very much. Here's what it means. It means you're setting your focus on. It means you're fixated on. You're, you're looking at. You're, you can only stare at man's concerns, your own human concerns. You can't be focusing on the concerns that are God's. And here Peter, in his love for Jesus, natural love, in, in his desire that Israel be exalted to its place once again, that Jesus would be this dominant warrior king as the son of David, he could only be concerned about human things. And Jesus is saying, no, you got to look beyond that. I have another purpose. I have another mission. And that's to bear your sins in my death on the cross. You see, friends, the man is Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the chosen one of God, the Messiah of the Jewish people. The mission that he came to do was to suffer to be rejected and to die for your sins and for mine and ultimately to rise again from the dead to newness of life where he lives forever on the right hand of God. And that means thirdly and finally as we close here, I want to talk briefly about the meaning of this passage for us. The meaning of this passage. You say it would be one thing for you to say, well, that's a very interesting comment for Peter and for the other 11 disciples. They needed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he had this mission to stand in the place of sinners and die on their behalf. And friends, we should realize that the Bible has so much more to say. I just want to read you a couple passages in the book of Acts after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he has ascended up into heaven, and now his disciples are taking the Christian message to the whole world. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. He says in verse 36, as he's preaching to these people who had just consented to the crucifixion of Jesus, his death and suffering, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, let them be convinced that God has made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, the Messiah. Friend, do you know assuredly that Jesus has been made the Lord and the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God? In chapter 4 of Acts, Peter is again preaching to the multitude in Jerusalem, and he says this, this, these words, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
It's not enough to believe that Jesus is one of the prophets. It's not enough to believe that he was just one of the messengers. It's not enough to have compliments to think about Jesus. Because if this Bible is true, my friend, there is no other name whereby we can be saved. There is no other prophet that can give us eternal salvation. It is Jesus or it is no one. In Acts chapter 10, as this gospel is being proclaimed to the Gentile world, Peter is speaking now to Cornelius. He says, and he, God, commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, the Messiah, Jesus, which was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and dead. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to the people at Athens, the people in this cosmopolitan Greek city full of education, listen to what he commands them. He says, now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. Who? Which man? Jesus Christ, whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Friends, are you convinced? Are you convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who stood in your place to take upon him your sins, to die for them, and to be raised again one day to be your judge eternally. If Jesus of Nazareth was here this morning, standing in bodily, physically in your presence, and you felt that penetrating gaze and his finger pointing at you and saying, who do you say that I am? Could you say boldly with the full conviction of everything you feel and know to be true, you, Jesus, are the Christ. You are the one who had to suffer to be rejected and to die in my place for my eternal salvation. Oh, friend, let that question sink into your hearts today. Let you feel it in the deepest part of your soul and ask yourself today, what would my answer be? What would the conviction of my heart be? You see, in... Acts chapter 16, there was a jailer at Philippi. He was holding Paul and Silas in jail, and God decided that those two men needed to get out, and an earthquake hit the place. And that man, fearing that these prisoners had now escaped, and his job, perhaps his life, would be at stake, he took a sword, and he was about to kill himself. And Paul said, no, we're still here. Don't kill yourself. And he came in, he got a light, and he came in, and he was trembling, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to have what you have? And, 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 Pete, and Paul responded to him with the words that countless have relied on for their salvation. He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You see, friends, it's actually pretty simple. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who have you trusted him to be? Do you trust him to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved? And secondly, do you believe, do you trust that he stood in your place 
to take on your sins and to be risen again for your complete justification and your vindication eternally. My friend, I say to you today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This question, who do you say that I am, will determine your eternal destiny. May the answer of your heart be the one today that the Bible gives.